The Poetic Podcast. On this podcast, we delve deep into the world of poetry and meet with some of the most talented and inspiring poets working today. My name is Jay Rosanna. I'm your host and a poet, and I believe that poetry has the power to move, to inspire, and to connect us to each other and to the world around us. Through these conversations with poets, I hope to shed light on the creative process, themes and ideas that inspire their work, and the impact poetry can have on everybody's lives. In this episode, we'll be meeting Maria T. Destefano, so let's jump right in. Maria T. De Stefano. Hello. Good morning, Jay. Good morning, everybody who's listening. <laughs> How are you today? Um, I'm okay, actually. I'm okay. Sort of got everything ready, got myself ready. The cat's sleeping so behind me, so uh, hopefully she won't try to hog the session. Tell us about your cat. She's a bit of a diva. Are we all? <laughs> her name's Stella. Her brother died a couple of years ago, so it's given her a new lease of life because they, they didn't get on. They used to sort of fight. But sadly, he died a couple of years ago and we were all really upset, sort of bawling our eyes out. And she was like, it's all mine now. She's the queen of the castle now. So, you know, she's kind of had a new lease of life. It's really quite, uh, quite, quite lovely to see, actually. I just kind of feel that cats were born to be pampered and spoilt and served. Absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely a cat person. I'm definitely in the cat person territory. Even though where I live, I'm not allowed to have a cat. So, <laughs> Although it would, it would struggle getting in as I live on the second floor. Well, I, I had a colleague once. He lived on the, the first floor, but he managed to build like a ramp from oh. one of his kind of first floor windows so his cat could sort of could access the garden and everything. There's ways around it, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in the future. So, Maria, for people who are hearing you for the first time, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about you, where you're from and where you are now? Okay, so I was born in Worcester and brought up in Worcester, which is where I am now. But I had most of my adult life. I actually left Worcester when I was 18 to go to university. And from sort of 18 till about five or six years ago now, I lived away from Worcester. But I always kept in touch with the family. We've always had a very strong bond. It's a big family. Uh, We were all, all cousins and everything all brought up together. So there was always a pull bringing me back weekends, holidays or whatever. I always felt that I had one foot in Worcester. I lived in London, mostly. And then I kind of, unfortunately, got a bit ill a few years ago and had to sort of give up my job and everything and came back home. And I haven't regretted it, actually. It's been wonderful coming back. I was ready to leave London. Worcester's a beautiful place to live. Uh, as you know, I moved to Worcester and uh, I stayed here just before lockdown and during lockdown. And I liked it so much, I moved here permanently. Funnily enough, I when I left, I couldn't wait to leave Worcester. You know, I was kind of a teenager. Worcester was very different then. I mean, Worcester's really kind of expanded. It's looking outwards a lot more. Whereas I think when I was growing up, it was still quite provincial. And me and my friends, we just couldn't wait to get out and, you know, sample the world, go and see what's going on in life and everything. There's a lot of different poetry groups in Worcester and there's an awful lot going on. There is now, I find, definitely, you know, Worcester's really kind of quite brimming. But, I mean, I'm talking about like the 1970s. Yeah, of course. We're going back a long way. I think a lot of places, I think... You know, the, the, the country as a whole was a bit like that. Maybe it was a, a post-war thing. But I, I love Worcester and I love my childhood. I had a fantastic childhood in Worcester, very free places to go and play and that sort of thing of like you go out in the morning and you don't have to come back till sort of tea time kind of thing and parents don't really worry about where you're going. Yeah, so it was that kind of childhood really and I'd write a lot about my childhood. It's always played a big part in my life. Whenever I've been going through horrible times, relationship breakdowns or whatever, I always kind of find that my escape route is to sort of go back into my childhood. Remember when things were free and easy. (laughs) Of 
course. And so when did poetry start to play a part in that? Was Did that start in childhood or was it something you visited later? No, it did not start in childhood, I'm afraid. Okay, um, so there wasn't a teenage angst poet in you? No, not really, no. I mean, poetry for me started when I was at school. And unfortunately, I found that it was language that I couldn't understand. And a lot of the time I felt kind of um, excluded and frustrated that I didn't understand what, what the author was trying to tell me. That kind of bad experience with poetry really put me off for a long, long time. I've always liked writing. If, if anybody said poetry to me, it would be like, don't go there sort of thing, not my thing. I think really because I hadn't been exposed to poets that perhaps could have appealed to me, could have understood and got it sort of thing. That only happened really about, I think it was about 2016, when I came across a poet called Tony Walsh. I think he's called Longfellow a Manchester poet who was doing the memorial service for Ariana Grande when they had that um, the suicide bombing at the Manchester Arena. And a couple of weeks later, they did a big memorial service for it on the TV. And I just happened to be watching it. And Tony Walsh did this fabulous poem called This, this Is The Place. My ears pricked up. My eyes were like fixed on the TV. And I was like, my God, is this poetry? Is this what's happened to poetry? I mean, I've actually wrote a little poem about it, which I have got with me if if you do want to hear it. That was it. The fire was lit. And I got his book. And that that's how it all started, really, from Tony Walsh, Longfellow. Wow. Uh, yeah, so that that's it. And that then I kind of like started writing poetry and then I kind of realized well it's not just about writing you've actually got to go out and do this you know sort of perform it or whatever which was like oh my god I went my first poetry event was I think about a year after or something like that in Worcester and god I was absolutely terrified I still do it now actually you kind of think oh my god why am I doing why actually am I doing this you know why am I putting myself through this you know I think I think we all do that we do. Um, and then, yeah, and that was it. it. Just And then I discovered, as you said, there's actually a bit of a poetry scene going on in Worcester. That was my, my entry into poetry, if you like. Would you mind telling us your poem? Yeah. What's your poem called? I suppose I'd have to name it after him, really. Tony Welsh Longfellow. He is, is really, he did it. He kind of lit the spark. It's in his book, which is called Sex and Love and Rock and Roll, He wrote a manifesto at the beginning, which was basically a kind of clarion call, really, to anybody to kind of reclaim poetry, if you like. I think there's a lot of people, it seems, that have had my kind of experience with poetry that they thought they knew. And actually, it's like poetry belongs to everybody. You know, you don't have to be Lord Byron or whatever. You know, you can just be you. And actually, I find find that quite interesting because my family are mostly illiterate. Uh, the older generations and so they're kind of they've got a very kind of verbal culture really they don't write anything down not not even recipes my grandmother she sort of cooked just kind of like by instinct just have to remember it so it was all a kind of verbal vocal tradition really so that kind of fit in I thought with what Tony Walsh Longfellow was saying okay I'll get on and do the poem now <laughs> thank you Tony Walsh, Longfellow. You opened a door I thought locked forever inside me. A door that said, poetry, no entry. Cause at school I felt like a poetry fool. The dunce at the back of the classroom. In a world of highbrow that looked down on lowbrow. In a world that said, no, no, no. So I didn't. And I turned away until the day I heard you say, this is the place. And you pointed at my dead poetry heart and there was a spark and it started beating and beating faster. And as I turned the pages of sex and love and rock and roll, it hit my soul. And I realised that whilst I was looking the other way, poetry had gone through changes. The single mother, the drug dealer, the gig, the rave, you dress them up in poetry clothes and your manifesto was an invitation with no dress code. It doesn't matter what my name is. It doesn't 
have to be on the list. I could be a Smith or a charlatan. I could be a guy called Gerald. Whether my Mondays are happy or blue, it doesn't matter. I don't even have to be from Manchester. But it was Manchester that gave me the vote and said, use it. And it was Manchester that gave me a poetry voice and said, use it, diffuse it, schmooze it, foot loose and fancy free it. But whatever you do, don't lose it. Because this is the place, you said. Thank you. You see, this is what I like about your poetry, Maria. For me, you're a great poetic storyteller. Because sometimes you hear a poem that has, a, you know, um, a fixed message in it. But your poems always have a roundness to them. And I also love the distinctive presentation style um, that you deliver your poems in. Is that something that you're aware of or that you've crafted or is it just the way it comes out? I think it's definitely something I have thought about and, and worked on. I mean, to begin with, I was just terrified. And I think I sort of put myself in the position of, of somebody listening to me. And kind of thinking, well, this is how poetry is now. You've got an audience. You're in the moment. How do I get my, well, not say message. How do I communicate? It's almost like a proclamation sometimes. It's just like, this is me, deal with it kind of poetry, which, which I really like because it sort of draws you in and grabs your attention, especially because you do some longer poetry pieces as well, don't you? So I think that really helps to maintain the listener in the poetry and engages them through, throughout the whole piece. So I, re I really like that about your poetry. Oh, thank you very much. Thank well, I think you do the same, Jay. <laughs> you don't oh, mind me oh. saying, you know, I think you've got a, an, an, a, an amazing presence when you perform your poetry. And, and look, I learn from you. I learn from anybody, anyone. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of excluding, well, I don't want to listen to him or her or whatever. As, as, a, as a learner, you know, I want to be eyes and ears open and heart open. I mean, I love music. You know, music has always been a part of my life. And think of uh, bands like um, the Stones and the Beatles famously took blues music but they kind of, they sort of made it their own sort of thing. They put their own sort of vibe on it. But I don't, I don't want to block anything out. If there's something to be learned, I want to learn it. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons I like doing these podcasts, because you get to meet and listen to lots of different poets who all have different styles and are all distinctive in their own way. Yeah. But, but all of whom really appreciate listening to other people's poetry too because it's a, it's a process isn't it we don't have a, a fixed way of doing anything and I imagine like you over the years have developed your style and your your, your presentation style even your writing style and it, it, it isn't something that you just learn and then that's it um, and I think that when you said earlier that it's a thing of the people um, poetry I think that's for me that's what makes it really accessible because Anybody can do poetry and you don't really have to learn anything. All you have to do is really just put yourself into some words. That's really the, the most important thing, I think, for, for the poetry is being able to convey the thing that you're saying very, very simply. So who else inspires you, either classically or historically or contemporary? Well, in terms of poets, I would have to say that I mentioned Tony Walsh, but one of my first kind of first live inspirations, if you like, was actually going to a poetry night that was hosted by Spoz. I didn't know who Spoz was. My first sort of poetry gig, an open mic, let's say. And then I realised that Spoz was also from an Italian background. And he actually, in his poetry, talks about his Italian background. And that suddenly kind of gave me permission to talk about my, because I never thought of doing that you know I thought well who, who wants to know about my sort of Italian upbringing and everything but then Spoz was doing it and I thought there's a whole kind of like area of stuff that I can do and and really would like to do so Spoz inspired me in in that sense poets like Kathy Carson I think she is absolutely amazing absolutely love her stuff in a similar vein Claire Tedstone Jemima Hughes and I have to say yourself Jake your poetry I think is amazing and your live sort of 
performance is amazing. In terms of subject matter, I was watching a film by Ken Loach. I absolutely love his his stuff and the subject matter that he does as well, right through his sort of career, really, from sort of play for today. He talks a lot about, in his films, about sort of social injustice. And he talks about getting that fire in your belly. And I really kind of relate to that. Hopefully, I sort of try and channel it through my poetry. There's people like Joelle Taylor as well. I mean, there's John Cooper Clark, Mike Gary. I mean, Mike Gary has performed with New Order and he came to Worcester a few years ago. He uses sound a lot. He did a very famous poem called St. Anthony. It was about um, Anthony Wilson, the sort of Mancunian, the time of the sort of Manchester and um, the, the Hacienda and everything like that. I think he was a TV presenter to begin with, but he really encouraged local sort of music talent and everything. And um, and Mike Gary did a poem about him. Was that when he came in 2019? That's right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, he, right. yeah, I remember he went to, I think it was Licensed to Rhyme, wasn't it? It was Licensed to Rhyme, that's it. Licensed to Rhyme came to Worcester. I just kind of was quite blown away by just this this way that he used, you know, with, with the sort of sounds and everything. James Scott Howes, the theatricalness of James Scott Howes. I love that. And how he kind of like really gets in, he challenges the audience. He's right, you know, right in your face. I, I Talk really, about having fire in your belly. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Benjamin Zephaniah as right. well. I love yes. Benjamin Zephaniah. You know, I'm into the kind of socio-political stuff. There's another guy, actually, a local guy called Joe Cook as well. Another time when License to Rhyme came to Worcester. Um, but he kind of does a little bit of rap stuff. I was saying earlier about just opening my mind as much as possible. You know, I feel like I've come to poetry very late in life, if you like. So, you know, there's an awful lot for me to learn. So it's like, just get it from anywhere and everywhere. Lyrics as well, song lyrics. People like Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks and, you know, dare I say, the Smiths, Morrissey. There's one one song I really love and I can't remember. How does it go? I'm not going to start singing. That's probably not the best thing to do. You wouldn't want me to sing it for you. <laughs> the, song, the title of the song's called Big Mouth. I really like his his lyrics, you know, the way they're so kind of like down to earth, but absolutely amazing. That um, big mouth strikes again. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh gosh. I'll... I'm not going to sing the lyrics to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not do that. When we were kids in the seventies, my brother was he was my older brother was like the uh, the record collector, and of course in the seventies you had lovely vinyl albums with the sleeves with all the lyrics. On the on the sleeve, so happy old days. Who's the Shelley the poet? Percy Shelley. Is it Percy Shelley? He did that poem. They are few, but we are many. Is this the mask of anarchy? Yeah. Yay are many, we are few. Yes. Percy Bicey Shelley. I think it is him. You know, oh. poetry past, present. I think the list will go on forever. Came across a poem just a couple of days ago. It was on YouTube. Poet called Katie Mackey. I think she's Canadian or American. She did this um, poem called Pretty. Oh, my God. It just absolutely blew my socks off. But I've never seen anything else of what she's... I, I can't see that she's published anything. There doesn't appear to be that much, you know, sort of on, on YouTube. She's not on Facebook, as far as I can see. So it's anything. I mean, even somebody that isn't an established poet or um, artist or whatever... I did the words collide open mic. You've been you've been along, and it's yeah. what what I really like is when there's somebody who comes along who's never done it before and just wants to give it a go, and maybe has only got one poem that they will ever probably share, and it's always absolutely brilliant. Just the heart that people put into things and having the safe space to be able to do that, I think, is really great. So I'm with you. Like when you come across. Suddenly, because I, I like absorb poetry like anything these days, I've got all sorts of books that, that I'm lined up to read. But when you come across somebody you haven't heard before, either on the written page or in the spoken word, that just really jumps off the page. They don't have to be like professional poets. They don't have to be like have loads and loads of books out. One poem can make a difference. And it can be a very short poem sometimes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Totally. That's one of the things I discovered about going to like poetry or spoken word evenings or whatever, whatever you want to call them, is that I've got my 
style, whatever, you know, my poems or the things that I like to write about. But what I really, really love is that obviously each person does their own thing and you can be transported anywhere. And I, I just love that. You know, I like just sitting back and it's like, right, OK, where are we going now? That was that, you know, somebody just did poems about whatever flying to the moon. Maybe the next person is going to do a poem about her child or the Malvern Hills or whatever, you know. And, and, and I, I absolutely love that about poetry. And it's something I never expected. And, mm. and, I, and I just love it. I just think, right, this is great. Different people's filters, different people's points of views, different styles, quiet, loud, sort of funny it's great it's lovely but I'm always saying to my family come on come along they're sort of me perhaps a few years ago you know and I'm like no it's changed it's all different now and actually my sister's okay she's a convert but I've sort of managed to get cousins along and they're like actually it's better than I thought don't worry my family as well they're they're not particularly interested in poetry or any any of the poetry that I do I always say though we're all poets everybody's a poet even people who say I don't do poetry it's just some of us just choose to share it that's that's all it is really a lot of people just keep it inside I was talking to another poet recently who, who was at the mindset that that if you can do poetry do poetry and if you can share it do share it and that's what I wanted to ask you about was it's a quite a big step from discovering poetry and writing poetry for yourself to then sharing that poetry with others and then standing in front of a, a microphone or sometimes not a microphone and just projecting and sharing that poem with a group of people that you don't know. Can you tell us a little bit about your your journey through that? Yeah, absolutely. I was horrified. I said before, I was horrified. Absolutely horrified that it's not enough now to kind of write a few words on a page. You know, you actually have to get up there unless you just want the poem to stay on the page forever and nobody ever sees it. You never share. And I think if you're a creative person, there's something in you that you want to share your stuff, touch people's souls. You've got to go stand up in front of people and do it. There's something about connecting with people, I think. I think that's a really important point when, especially for me, and I've heard other poets say it too, that moment when you realise you've made a connection. Absolutely. And I try and um, kind of get in as, you know, cause if you get, if I get thoughts like that, like, oh, you know, is this, if I'm trying to evaluate myself as I'm going along, it's like, no, block it out. And I just really try and stay in, in the zone and just, just kind of try and block everything else out. I haven't got a a very good memory for remembering my poems verbatim so you know I'm always having this thing as like am I going to be able to turn the pages are they going to get stuck and I mean I'm normally pretty meticulous about my preparation you know making sure I've got the poems are they all in the right order you know all that kind of the pages numbered everything but um, on one occasion I missed out a page of the uh, of the poem and and I didn't realise until I turned the page and it's like, ah, it's not the next, you know. And so that was just like, keep calm and carry on. <laughs> you know? Somebody told me that we also have to remember that for many people listening to our poetry, even though we've maybe done it hundreds of thousands of times, for some people it's the first time they've heard it. And That's and quite often they're a little bit, and people are a little bit be, behind us reading it because they're processing it too. I think, we're probably more conscious of those things than perhaps the audience are from from time to time. Yeah. I can't I can't remember the the number of times where I've been performing and I've completely missed a line or I've completely missed a, a stanza or something. Yeah. And then my, my bra- I, I can't switch off like you. My my brain is trying to like calculate the way out of it. And and my fear is that people will be reading my poetry in a book line by line, following along, going, "Wait a minute." <laughs> She's gone off script. Just block it out. Just keep going. While you're talking, I was trying to remember when we first met. I always ask people this. And I think, did we first, we first met, obviously, I think it must have been in Worcester. I think it was in person. I think it was last year at the Worcester Lit Fest. And it was, I think it was at um, at Fred's Cafe. And that's the first time I think I've, I saw you perform. Yeah. I have an I have a memory that during the pandemic, did you do a, a, a speakeasy Zoom? 
We did. We did. That's why I was coming and in my my mind. And I'm thinking, yeah. did I see you on an online event? Yeah, I think I did. I think although I didn't actually actually get you know actually meet you, but I do remember seeing and thinking, wow. <laughs> Wow, that that's uh, you know sort of a poet to look out for, and I wasn't wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Give me time. I was the same with you, and and I I certainly remember Fred's, and I remember being I was all flustered because I was having trouble with my I'd had trouble with my car, and I was relying on trains, and I had to come and go, and and I'd literally just got to the place, I had to get changed at the place, and then I had to leave quite early, but I remember being. Um, struck by your poem because I think you performed your last train to Birmingham New Street. I did, yeah? yes, yeah. That's my special occasion poem. That's your special occasion poem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, because I wrote that poem quite a few years ago. I don't know. I must have had like sort of, you know, a sort of, I, th- I actually it was quite, I remember writing a sort of a first draft, if you like. And thinking, oh, God, no, this is no, 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 this is no good. And I remember really like forcing myself like, no, come on, push it, push it, push it sort of thing. So and it, that is oh, it's my favourite poem. Uh, and it's like, oh, gosh, I want to write another one. Do you know what I mean? You know, I've sort for my own myself personally, I've kind of set the bar and I'm thinking, but no, it's not Birmingham New Street. Uh, so it's kind of a not. It's, no, it's not love-hate, really. I love the poem. I love it. It takes me back to a, a time which I, I kind of relate to now of when I was kind of like setting out in the world, leaving home for the first time, that kind of thing, and and a sort of that sense of a, a, a kind of a, being able to tap into that sense of adventure and excitement about life and finding out who you are and everything. And and, and and I've sort of recently, over the last few years, I kind of feel that I've connected back with who I was when I was kind of 17, 18 years. And not totally. I hope I'm a bit wiser. But just that sense of like, well, there's still there's still life left in me sort of thing. What am I going to do with it? You know, and, and because I've always loved writing is like really sort of finding sort of my writing sort of self in poetry. Yeah, it's all kind of a bit exciting again. So that poem particularly struck me. Um, I should tell people who are listening who don't know what Birmingham New Street is. It's a really large um, railway station um, (laughs) in in Birmingham in the UK. And it's very, very busy all of the time. And by the time hopefully this podcast comes out, we'll be able to tell people that that poem is actually going to be printed, isn't it, on our mini poetry press? Thank you very much for that, Jay. You know, I, I kind of owe that to you because that's another side of of poetry and and being an artist if you like that I find very very difficult which is promoting myself I just kind of feel really awkward you know it doesn't come easy at all Um, it's difficult there's such a lot of a lot of people out there wanting to get their poetry published and printed and it, it it is, I find it's just a world of rejection yeah. um, and with very small amount of acceptance involved in it, which is why I started Mini Poetry Press, because I just thought it would be really great just to give poets just an opportunity to get their great poems out that you might not otherwise hear about in a really simple, accessible way. So I'm really pleased that you you came on board as one of the first. Well, I'm so really pleased too, obviously, but also because um, when I'm doing submissions for, obviously for, for anthologies or whatever, my poems are just, they just don't get past the first hurdle. Because I tend, and I, I don't know, I don't know why, but I tend to do long, long poems, long poetry, long pieces. So often it's like no more than forty lines. It's a bit deflating, really, a bit demoralising. So I really appreciate the fact that you've come up with a fantastic idea and and asked me to sort of um, to submit Birmingham New Street. It's a brilliant story with a kind of twist to the tale as well. If it'd be all right with you, do you think you'd be able to share that with everyone? Oh yes, I can. Yes. Thank you. The last train from Birmingham New Street. The pip pip pips cut her short, but I just had time to tell her, Mum, save me some dinner. 
because I was going to be late. I would have to wait for the last train from Birmingham New Street. The first time out of my town alone in a big metropolis, trying to hide my small townness, trying to hide my inner childness who felt like she'd lost her mum in the crowd. And I had to protect her, defend her, keep her from pickpocket smugglers and sex offenders who might have her on their sleazy agendas waiting for the last train from Birmingham New Street. And the information board was spinning out times, destinations, platforms. And I watched it like a gambling addict at a one-armed bandit waiting for a triple line of cherries. Hit after hit until I quit when the numbers flipped for the last train from Birmingham New Street. Platform six, platform six, train now leaving platform six. And the compartment was empty, shoulders nestling, tired upholstery, tired of supporting back since 1950. But I put my feet up because I thought it would make me look tough and streetwise and put people off. But it was just me, the scared, trying to scare off the scary. My fellow travellers were late night briefcase workers carrying their own reasons for going home late on the last train from Birmingham New Street. And the compartment door opens and a guy about my age walks in, closes the door behind him and drops in his seat like he's beat. I move my feet. He's out of breath, made it just in time to catch the last train from Birmingham New Street. And my stranger danger detector detects no danger. He wasn't a late night briefcase worker. He looked like me, not physically. He was blonde, blue eyed with John Lennon glasses, roughly shaven like the German actor who played the captain in Das Boot. And the bonus to add to the plus was he wore a long dark ox fan coat, which in 1980 denotes... He was probably into the same alternative post-punk music as me. He looked quite friendly and I felt foolhardy because I thought he looked quite fit. And I know I shouldn't be thinking it on the last train from Birmingham New Street. He spoke, the ice broke. Do you mind if I smoke? No. Then he offered one to me and I know you shouldn't take sweets from strangers, but this was a cigarette and he was fit and I took it. Slamming the door in the face of my mum's orders after she caught me smoking out the bathroom window, I didn't tell him though. And with a flick of his bick, he lit my burgeoning urge to break out of my small town prison and embrace this newfound emancipation, this new generation of me. We made conversation and the smoke swirled as he spoke and told me his reason for being on the last train from Birmingham New Street. He was in a band, he said. he just recorded a session due for transmission on the old grey whistle test. I was impressed. But my mind was racing too far ahead because he was ticking my boxes in places I never knew boxes existed. And that inner child I was trying to protect suddenly grew up into a post-punk fan fatale like Susie Sue. A new voice, a new choice in my inner world of personas. But I liked her because she had balls and was kicking down the walls of my small town prison shyness. And she was making me feel reckless, like I really wanted this. Though exactly what I wanted was a bit ambiguous. Was it love or lust? Soulmate or playmate was up for debate on the last train from Birmingham New Street. And he said they supported Joy Division and taught like he knew them. And I know I wanted to know him, definitely. So my mind started weaving dreams and projecting scenes of me and him talking music and politics and inner polemics over half-drunk coffee and browsing in record shops intellectually. And the smoke swirled and twirled and we unfurled names of albums and obscure tracks on limited editions and meanings of lyrics and their politics. And I know and I'm short and squat and ungirly and I can't pout like Debbie Harry, but he might still fancy me for my brain. It wasn't beyond the realms of reality, even for a small town shy girl like me who was trying to embrace her inner Susie. All the time, his smoke and mine rose and entwined like the hands of two lovers finding each other on the last train from Birmingham New Street. And the West Midlands nightscape slipped by unnoticed until we got into Stourbridge and he said this was his stop and got up to get off the last train from Birmingham New Street. But the train took a jolt and he lost his feet and stumbled over me. Our faces meet like a film noir scene. We're locked in freeze frame tension suspension, which begged the question, are we going to kiss or what? On the last train from Birmingham New Street, at least. 
That's how I wish it had ended. As the train left Stourbridge Station behind in time and me alone in an empty compartment, no kiss, no address, no number, no meet-up later, no parting look over his shoulder from the lookalike German actor who was in the band that I can attest. Never played on the old grey whistle test. Thank you. Fabulous. I love how it's so relatable. And I also love all of the cultural references that, that, that you've got in there. And it's true. <laughs> it's true. And it's, I think it's true for a lot of us, to be honest with you. <laughs> That's why I say it's relatable. <laughs> oh, absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Oh, you're welcome. If we were sitting, I ask everyone this, if we were sitting in a cafe, because when I started out these podcasts, I were doing them in cafes. If we were sitting in a cafe at Birmingham New Street or anywhere else, Maria, what's your favourite beverage and what would you have to go with it? Does it have to be a cafe? No, it doesn't have to be a cafe. No. It could be just... anywhere you like. It could be a bar if you like. Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't drink tea or coffee. Okay. I used to, but part of my kind of whatever you want to call it, my illness a few years ago, it's kind of left me with weird kind of like neurological things like tea and coffee um, give me migraines. Thankfully, it hasn't affected alcohol. <laughs> so my tipple, I've got a couple of tipples, but I, I like brandy and ginger and I like vodka and cranberry, vodka and tonic, vodka, weird things, vodka and bitter lemon. I like Cinzano. Martini. <laughs> not all at once. Let's let's just let's just no, make that clear. Not not all at the same time. No, no, I don't have the uh stamina for drinking. You know, one or two, and that's it. I'm done now. Right. Um, okay. So, so does that answer your question? <laughs> I, yes, I, yes, I think it does. So, so I think our next meetup's not going to be in a coffee shop. It's going to be in a bar somewhere. There you go. You see. Yeah. What's yours, actually, Jay? Yeah. What, what's, what's my favourite alcoholic tip? Well, all right, whilst we're on the subject. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. So I've been through quite a journey in my life. I'd say before I was how I am now, I was quite partial to uh, a neat Jack Daniels. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was my go-to. That was my go-to go drink, I have to tell you. Neat. Oh, neat. Dear. Absolutely neat. No oh, ice. Jay, I have a, a Jack Daniels. That that was the last, the hangover that kind of decided that I should never really drink again. I was at WOMAD Festival okay. many years ago, and it was in the summer and it was hot. For some reason, I, I had water, but I had a bottle of Jack Daniels and I just... Mm just started drinking it neat you do. <laughs> and I ended up outside the big marquee tent by the entrance lying on my back looking at the stars and everybody walking past looking at me um and whilst the start whilst the the universe was spinning and I could hear people like oh is she all right oh look at her you know <laughs> so after that I had like the hangover you know one of those hangovers where you think this is it I'm gonna die and I just thought, right, that's it. I am, I'm too old for this. <laughs> so but it, it, Jack Daniels kind of stopped me, not drinking completely, but, you know, certainly stopped yeah, me, yeah. made me kind of realise you're too old for this kind of stuff. I was quite lucky. I mean, I was brought up in a kind of Italian strict-ish family, but not uh, certainly not as strict as a lot of my, my friends. My mum was quite open-minded in that she... She knew, she wasn't too traditional, you know. She was like, "Look, you've got to grow up. You've got to go out. You've got to have friends." I've actually written a lot about this. A lot of my Italian friends, their parents have brought over their sort of traditions. Some fine, no problem, but some kind of clashed with kind of the culture over here, and especially with regards to daughters and girls. And a lot of my friends were not allowed to go out at all. There's lo loads of sort of stories of girls sneaking out, you know, friends sneaking out to a nightclub and they come out and the dad's waiting outside to sort of take them home and that kind of thing and telling them off. Very, very strict, but not luckily not for me. Yeah. I remember a poem that you did just reflecting on those traditions of being a girl and being approached by a man. 
and it ended up that the poem was not about the man approaching you for wrong intentions. Yeah, that was actually that was because I did a French degree. So I did my year abroad in France, in the south of France. How lucky was that? I ha- I got out there earlier than my a lot of my friends. I was there about two weeks early. I think I'd misread the dates or something that you had to be there. So I had basically had two weeks on my own in, in Aix-en-Provence. Beautiful, absolutely gorgeous place. And I think uh, this one Sunday I, I went out for a walk and, you know, sort of trying to get to know the place and everything. I was basically followed by, at the time, I didn't know what he was. He was just this bloke, this weird bloke following me around. And I sort of tried to kind of like lose him and everything. But in the end, um, it turns out that he was just trying to sell me makeup sewn into his coat was like sort of mascara and eyeshadow and watches up his arm and everything like the sort of Del Boy of Aix-en-Provence. It shows an aspect of life that is so really really important that helps people understand each other a lot better. Absolutely I was just going to say that actually Jay you know it kind of like understand each other you know might not be the same sort of thing as me but you have that kind of like connection does poetry make the world a better place I like to hope so (laughs) it certainly doesn't make it any worse (laughs) so we were talking about a little bit about craft earlier about the actual process of writing and and like me you were saying about looking at older poems that we've written and wanting to revise edit update them and that leads me on to thinking that we're all we're all on a, di- a journey through poetry and, and there isn't a set way of doing anything. Uh, it's just what it feels right. So where are you now? Like, what are you working on at the moment? What's current for you in the, in poetry? From being somebody who was horrified by the performance side of it, I actually think my poetry is more suited to the performance side of it. There's a thread of just storytelling in your poetry. So the couple that you the, the couple that you've talked about about you know being followed around by by someone who's trying to sell you makeup and the last train to Birmingham music need to build to that twist in their tail, don't they? To for yeah. people to understand where you were coming from. Yeah, I mean, believe me, I have tried to write you know like a, a sort of shorter poems, but it's just I just don't think my brain is kind of like wired. To, to do that or whatever it is Maria it's it, it works for you because I, I I know and I can tell you and I think you already know you're a very popular poet certainly in the Worcester scene you are people look forward to to you performing your pieces of poetry not only the ones the popular ones that you do but also when you do the new ones we, we're all sitting there thinking what's she gonna do like, you know, and, and so so you you are whatever whatever is going up up in your mind about um, forms and and poetic styles and stuff. It's definitely working for you. Oh well, you know, thank you. I mean, God, I, I am blushing. I can't take a compliment. <laughs> I'm like my mum. My mum can't take a compliment. Are you looking to spread from Worcester and do wider? Oh yes, definitely. And this is me having my inner sort of fight with myself about pitching myself you know it's that I suppose it it comes down to that sort of fear of failure in terms of like what I write or whatever you know I'm trying to be like Jodrell Bank have my big satellite sort of open you know how which way I want to go whatever you know I'm I'm kind of learning as I go along and just just kind of like getting lots of inspiration I am a political animal. When I say politics, I mean more in terms of the kind of social issues and social injustice. And that that comes a lot from my my background. Can't let this go by without mentioning my my nonno, my papa nonno, we, we called him anyway, because he my grandparents came to live with us when we were kids. We heard their stories all the time, their ways, their traditions and everything, and mistreatment they had, particularly through um, the fascist period in Italy. It's really in my DNA as a person, but also as a poet. I had a a moment when my grandfather died 20 odd years ago. I remember being at his grave and people were, you know, they do that bit where you throw the soil onto the coffin and everything. It was my turn and I sort of went up to Pabanon's grave and I sort of looked 
and did my bit. And then I just said, which means they're going to hear your voice, Pabanon. That moment has just impressed on me. And I feel that my poetry is, yeah, I do a lot of my own kind of experiences, but, you know, I really feel like a debt to my family, my Pabanon and my Mamanon, my grandmother and grandfather, what they went through, they were uneducated. They never had the chance to go to school. They never had the chance to hold a pen in their hand. And I'm like the first gen, neither did my mother. Uh, I'm the first generation that has been able to do that. I kind of, I really do feel that history. And I feel that I owe it to them to tell their story, which is the story of a lot of people of that time. It's a story of a lot of people now. It's still relevant. That does come out. I mean, that shines out. I think that's what makes a large part of what your poetry is, is engaging. There's a lot of references in there. There's a lot of history in there. There's a lot of you and your family in your poetry. And so I, th- I think, what did you call him? Your nonno? Papanon. Papanon. I think your Papanon, I think, would, would be extremely proud of you. Right then, Maria. Free choice. We were yeah. talking about uh, pitching ourselves. We were talking about being able to tell people who we are, yeah. what we're all about. Yeah. Free choice for you. Can you tell us one of your poems that you think represents you best? Well, 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 well. Well, just one. Oh, gosh. It's one. It's called She. And it's an earlier poem that is basically about my mum, since we've been talking about my sort of uh, background, if you like. And I look after my mum now. I have been doing for the last few years. I've really got to know my mum in the last few years, spending so much time with her. So this is kind of my sort of admiration for my my mum and how hard she worked. She. She clocks out of her 10-hour shift in a factory that makes tin cans for baked beans. 10 hours of tins clattering, 50 hours a week in her ears. Defenders still not on the agenda in 1956. She picks up a baby at the factory gates from another Payazan factory worker who spent the day as her babysitter. And on her way home, she'll push the pram round the shops, pick up some chops, milk, butter. She's saving up for a fridge, her overtime and living off bone broth payoff, a television still out of the question, a washing machine, a domestic dream. So for her evening's entertainment, she'll wash tomorrow's nappies by hand, bent over a washboard and tub and scrub with a waxy green ingot of soap, made by fairy but tough on shit, and that's the way she likes it. Then she'll drape them spotless around the fire guard to dry on the dying heat of a coal fire dying in the hearth. And when her husband's left for the night shift, she'll get a few hours of broken sleep, feeding baby watched over a moon-faced alarm clock that reminds her tick-tock that she'll have to get up and start all over again. Tonight, when her husband's walked out the door, she'll wash and polish the lino floor on all fours while baby sleeps, little pot belly fed, bathed and clean in a baby powder dream, in a cot next to her bed, where finally she'll rest, with tomorrow already forming in her head. She walks past me now. A young mother, no more, squat, slow, her brow low, eyes fading and letting go, but never letting up. Work is in her spirit, is in her blood. The hand that worked a millennia of shifts, scrub nappy, spotless, polished, Linos fit for a duchess now holds onto a walking stick. Knuckles knobbled, fingers crooked, legs stiff. No one in this world can deny her contribution and she'll tell you it was worth it. Worth every bead of sweat, every ball-gowned, crinoline-skirted, porcelain frigorine in her china cabinet. Polished, dusted, relished, almost a fetish. Because these are her trophies, her victories over poverty, and she did it all for her kids. The biggest victory, the World Cup of her sacrifice to give her children the education, the life she 
was denied. Yes, it was hard. Yes, it was drudgery, but it was far, far better than a life of poverty because where she came from, work was a luxury in a society where poverty, indignity and exploitation were the only expectation for the masses. Mass classes and education, the privilege of those with the right lineage and plenty of shiny coinage. And a girl born poor had neither, not even the right gender. Her role was predetermined as a cooking, cleaning, have your way with baby machine, subservient, unpaid slave to every rank of patriarchy, brother, father, lord and master, your holiness and Jesus. Her future was the same as the past and the past before that. She broke out of her caste. She, this woman, this cast iron warrior who walks past me now with the presence of a Sherman tank, she broke out of her rank. Intelligent beyond her lack of education, she filled her empty future with aspiration. This woman who never read a book in her life because she was never taught how to, who couldn't tell you the first name about women's lib, but she lived it before I could even say it. She who found an escape route beyond the world she knew, who all recognised the light of opportunity and grabbed it in a foreign language before she could even speak it. She is more intelligent, brave, stronger, more human, more woman than I will ever be. Thank you. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Just spellbinding, really. Where can people find your work, Maria? Are you on social media? Yes, I mean, I'm on Facebook. You know, I am sort of doing the live, you know, events, the speakeasy, the dear listeners. So in the first instance, Facebook is the best place for people to connect with you? Yes, it's Maria T. I'll include a link in the description if people want to connect with you. Is that okay? Absolutely. Absolutely fantastic. Please do. Please come and link with me. Maria T. De Stefano, absolutely brilliant talking to you today. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much, Jay. Thank you for making it easy. Thank you for making it possible. Um, you're a breath of fresh air, if you don't mind me saying. Uh, and I've got something in mind for you. Well, not in mind. You said you'd do it. So, <laughs> um, so that's going to be winging its way over to you in the not too distant future. It was fabulous spending time with Maria. Watch out for her debut collection. It'll be an absolute killer. Now, let's talk about a couple of poetry books I've been spending my time in recently. The first, an anthology of poetry for mental health, is Mindful. 48 poems by 26 poets across the world, all on the themes of mental health and well-being. Next up is Close, by Emma Pursehouse, published by Office Press. Her poems from Flamingos in Dudley Zoo to Message from a Door Handle challenge the nitty-gritty of life and the local folks who live within it. And third up is Covid, the wordy wilds of a mind under lockdown, a cultural fusion of poetry by Naima Shamshun, a previous wonderful guest on the Poetic Podcast. Thank you for joining me on the Poetic Podcast. My name is Jay Rosanna, and I hope you'll join me again. Ta-da!